welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I'm streaming live from the Team Needham abode, and my wife is about ready to get to, to open the pharmacy right now, so she won't be streaming with me today, um, and I have to fly out early today, so that's why we're having a podcast early, and, and unfortunately, my wife couldn't be with me, So, but that doesn't mean we don't have an amazing guest with us, as usual, at Health Solutions. So um, I am super excited to uh, introduce Dr. Dan Stockton. He is a a rebel physician that has a direct primary care practice. And he's been quite a rebel for more than just the last three or four years, like a lot of physicians that were woke up during um, COVID. Um, He was awake way before that, and he's going to tell his story. So Dan, without further ado, Dr. Stock, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on, Sean. So tell us a little bit about your history. I mean, starting from medical school and kind of when you found out that, you know, there was a lot of corruption going on in medicine. Well, you know, in medical school, you began to realize that this wasn't a well thought out plan. Um, most of what I did in medical school wasn't teaching me how to think about disease. It was, Dan, we're making profit off of you. <laughs> Go draw blood. Um, periodically, we'll say something that might make you smarter. Um, but we at least engaged in debates. Um, I can tell you that right around 2006, when the Affordable Care Act passed, and they, I realized they were going to centralize all the financial power of healthcare in the government, even worse than it was before. Um, I actually ran to become one of the board members of the physician board at my local health network that I was employed at and got to sit right beside all of the guys who were doing all of the uh, budgeting for the hospital system and could tell me what they could show you what they were afraid of. And this was very revealing. So they went on to say, Dan, look, I don't think you understand how Medicare and Medicaid work, but the laws of the land say that we're a nonprofit, so we can't refuse to take Medicare and Medicaid. And the way Congress has designed Medicare and Medicaid is basically the federal government can do whatever it wants. They make all the rules up for billing. Um, They can come out and examine your books anytime they want. And because they make the rules, they will find you guilty because they have made the rules nebulous. And every hospital and every health network and every doctor is breaking the rules of Medicare and Medicaid every day. And the government knows it and allows it to happen because that way they can come in and attack you if you aren't doing all the unwritten rules they want done. And if you try and appeal them, you don't get to take them to the Supreme Court. You have to go to administrative law judge who is employed by the Department of Health and Human Services. And you'll be found guilty anyway, and they'll strip out all your finances and bankrupt you. So this is what we're scared of. And uh, they tell us that we have to employ your physicians and we have to make you guys follow these protocols that they call good medicine. And that's what we're going to do, because otherwise we're going to go bankrupt. So I started advocating for, look, what we need to do is resist against this. And of course, the board didn't like that position whatsoever. Eventually resigned me when I kept sending emails out to the other doctors saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then a little over 10 years ago, I stood up one of the doctor's meetings. It was very clear that the hospitals, uh, the the government and the insurance companies don't pay them enough to do inpatient care. They lose money on that. So they have to take money from the outpatient arena to make up and balance their books. And I stood up at the meeting and said, guys, look, we all see this going. We outpatient physicians are being forced to do things. 
that we know aren't in our patient's best interest, that there are better decisions than this, and it's financially coerced, we'd be better off to leave the employment of this hospital system, form our own group, make our Medicare and Medicaid patients pay us cash, but give them discounts to do so, um, and uh, then just take private insurance. And that health network fired me in four hours for saying that. That didn't take them long, did it? <laughs> well, you have to understand that I sat on the board with these guys and I know what they know financially the lay of the land and how powerful the government is. Um, I was just so passionate about the idea that healthcare had to change that this was worth the gamble. So, of course, um, my salary dropped to zero very quickly. By the way, they were so frightened of that message. There was a clause in my contract that says that if they fired me, they had to pay me for six months. And they paid me six months to do nothing, wouldn't let me see patients because they own my services, because um, they were trying to make me disappear. They were just trying to um, shut you up. Yeah. yeah. So in the meantime, Elizabeth and I got a, a job here and there working for a couple of employer groups and found out that when employers were the third party payer, who was absolutely no better, they would demand that you do what they wanted to their patients yeah. as well. And finally opened our direct primary care practice where it's like, look, we're taking money only from patients. We actually have a clause in our contract with our patients that says we're not allowed to make money on anything we give them advice about. Medicine, laboratory, supplement, referral, imaging. The only thing I sell is advice. And this way, my advice can be totally free of conflict of interest. So that's the backstory that led up to that video that happened in August of 2021. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not good at watching psychotic people be under-informed and taken advantage of by neurotic people. And so I was asked by a local person here to speak at our school board against the masking and, and uh, vaccine discrimination and went there not even knowing that it was being videotaped and said, look, you just got to know that the people you're taking advice from here are violating every scientific principle known to man. Yeah. This advice is just it's just total pablum. It's got nothing to do with reality. And with that kind of got strongly involved with the medical freedom movement, and Mary Tally Bowden and everyone else, Robert Malone. Uh, trying to get our government to turn around and get out of control of the crony capitalists who run it right now. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you stood up because here's the reality is that um, the federal government, Medicare and Medicaid, any of their payment programs is slavery. And any healthcare professional that takes it, whether they're a doctor, whether they're a pharmacist, they are slaves to that system. And you just shared the story. And I don't know of one healthcare professional that doesn't take their programs, that isn't scared that someday they're going to come in and do an audit. And, and basically, like you say, they, they will bankrupt them. It, it, it is by design. There is no way that you can follow every rule. So the, the only way you can get out of that is stop taking their money, just like you did. You know, and uh, I, I joke with people that uh, Anthony Fauci has been the best thing that ever happened to my practice because people in Indiana have realized the advice I'm getting right now is so tortuously coerced that I can't rely on it. Um, and they have decided that many of them to their own financial harm, because one of the ways this government system works is like, look, we're going to come out with taxes and insurance premiums and take away all the money that you would spend the way you want for your health care. And we're going to take it away and give it to a third party who's going to tell you what good health care is and you're going to get it. And many of these people have just said, look, you know, it's worth it to me to go to the movies less to know that the advice I'm getting isn't constrained. 
And it's not just limited to doctors. I know pharmacists at CVS and Walgreens who were told, look, you give out that ivermectin and you don't ask them if this is for worms and you'll be fired. And they've probably got the same non-compete, non-contact clauses in those pharmacists at CVS. So they know that they can't go work at another pharmacy. They couldn't come work for you if CVS fired them. And so they've got no financial choice but just to deny to give out the ivermectin with that financial gun to their head. Yeah. And the same thing with the COVID vaccines, too, if you want to call them vaccines. Yeah. And I don't want to call them vaccines because they're not. But I found out that uh, most of the insurance companies and the government are reimbursing like eight to ten dollars for the average vaccine. But they're reimbursing forty dollars for administering a COVID shot. Uh, and I tell somebody that, you know, you, if that isn't financial coercion to you, then you and I have a different definition of financial coercion. Um, especially, you know, it's and what I find happens with tyrants over time is they come out and they offer carrots. But then eventually they take away the carrots and all that's left is the sticks. Yep. And right now, most of my CVS pharmacists, if you can get them off camera and off microphone, will just tell you. Look, I, I got lots of student loan debt, which isn't by accident either. No, exactly. Right. Uh, and um, I'll be bankrupt if I fill that ivermectin. I don't yeah. think it's a problem. It's not going to hurt anybody. I've even heard him saying, look, in fact, I recently found out that there was a group of pharmacists who was pushing back against CVS saying that, look, you're pushing these shots so hard that we don't have the time and staff to actually dispense medicines that we can't even do that work because you are trying to push us so hard to get these shots pushed out on people. Um, but America is luckily getting a lot smarter. I, last I saw was like one or 2% of people say they plan on getting one of these bivalent boosters. Uh, is, the, it that, is it that low? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, even for their, um, for their initial round of bivalent shots, they came up with the, the old boosters. Um, they only got 30% of people who are eligible to take one. I think they're up to like 5% of kids in the country have been given one by their parents. Um, the new round, they said it's about 1% or 2% says they plan on getting one. And they have manipulated this thing probably about as well as you could manipulate the human population to try and sell them on this. And it still hasn't worked. Yeah. Um, and I'm very, I'm honestly, I, I get a lot of hope knowing that there have been so many people who have said, this is not going to work. We are not going to accept this. Uh, it's, we're not going to call it a vaccine. We're not going to accept that it's in our best interest. And there's nothing you can do. The, the more you advertise it, the worse you will make yourself look to us. Well, and in reality, if you have to mandate something for somebody's health, how good is it? I mean, seriously, I mean, that that's a red flag in my opinion already. And people are catching on to that. It's like, wow, people, you know, if it was dangerous, if, if it was a good enough product that it was going to save so many lives, you wouldn't have to mandate it. People would be lining up. I mean, from all over. Right. You know, and, it, and initially they did because the government lied so much about the research that had been done on this. They did line up. But then as they started watching people get sick and die around them, yeah. uh, and those of us who chose not to take these shots um, continued to survive and thrive, I think they, especially as the data started to come out about what Pfizer was hiding and the FDA was helping them hide, um, people began to realize, even though they, they may not come out and say it yet, but they've begun to realize, I have been fooled. Yeah. And I... I there are some people in the medical freedom movement who want to damn the vaccinated. And I beg them not to do that because these poor people 
have been sat upon by some of the best liars that have ever existed in the history of the world. Um, there, there are some of these guys who are such useful ignoramuses, uh, Fauci, uh, Walensky, um, that these guys actually, to a degree, believe the nonsense they're saying. Um, and unfortunately, there's been a lot of people just like, you know, Germans aren't bad people, but there was a lot of them who got fooled by the Nazis. Um, and uh, my hope is that America is evolving faster than the German population did before World War II. Well, we can just hope that, you know, um, the message travels faster just because of the media that we have now, you know, and the platforms we have. And that's one of the reasons that I have a podcast is just educate and empower individuals to make their own decision. Because if we were Basing our decisions on government alone, I think most people would agree, maybe not, but a lot of people would agree that the government does not have our best interests in mind at all. You know, and I think um, something you said earlier, Sean, is just very prescient. Um, the solution to misinformation, dif disinformation, and malinformation is never censorship. It's right. debate. Yeah. And yet I can tell you that Richard Urso, Ryan Cole, Robert Malone, Pierre Corey, um, Paul Merrick, we have all begged everybody from any level of government on the side of this to come to a debate. And they flee and avoid debate. Um, what happened on Joe Rogan when he challenged Peter Hotez to debate RFK Jr. was so telling um, yeah. that this little neurotic ignoramus ran away from that debate so quickly. Um, and to understand that when a government comes out and says, no, I have to do your thinking for you. Anyone who says, I have to do your thinking for you, give me your power and let me do that is the person you should immediately distrust. And it doesn't matter what they say after that. It should be distrusted. It's a fundamental reality of human behavior that when a man says, I want to take power over you, you should immediately ask yourself, why does he want this and how am I getting it back? And if he says, I'm not going to debate you over this, then you shouldn't give him anything. Right. And, and talking about censorship, no time in history have the people that were doing the censoring wound up on the good side of history. That, that's correct. I mean, I mean you, look censors, look in history. Right. you know, censors always are tyrants. They are intellectual tyrants. Um, and people should recognize that the, the only people who don't want to debate are tyrants. And tyrants never are thinking of you. That's their def By definition, they're thinking of themselves. And so we should recognize that the best thing to do in this is to have that calm debate. Um, you know, tyrants always try and whip up fear because of the way the brain works. People don't think deeply when they're frightened. I can bore this uh, entire uh, audience with the biochemistry of that if they want to. But you don't need to know the biochemistry to realize that that's the tool of a tyrant. And as soon as he's telling you, be frightened and let me save you, that he's probably trying to manipulate you. And yeah, it, it, it goes back to our reptilian brain, right? And you know, when I, you, yeah. right. And when you scare somebody, when you make and, and just think about situations that you put yourself in, um, you know, that are that, that are dangerous. I, I think of my wife and I, we went to Mount Washington last week. You know, the windiest place in the world, right? And um, it was six, the 70 mile an hour winds and it was raining and it was foggy. And I mean, our bodies were telling us this is dangerous, you know, and 
I remember one of the things that we I did is I I left my wife up at the top because I'm thinking to myself, I got to get down. And I made an irrational decision. It's like my wife could have died up there. I mean, not, you know, I mean, not really because there's a lot of people around and all that. But because my rational thinking goes out of the way when 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 you have fear in your mind. And that's exactly what the government did with COVID, especially when you look at the first few weeks of it or months of it, really. You know, I, I think it helps for people to understand a little bit exactly what's going on. I, I tell people in the human brain, uh, you have a mechanism to make it so you can make a fast decision. And the way that mechanism works is it suppresses memories that are not tightly tied to the thing that's emergent. Um, and so you make a decision that that looks irrational if you had time to think it out. It's rational in that time. And, and in fact, that it's rational and that tyrants can predict it is how they set up the emergency to use you, <laughs> to get you to ignore all these other things that we call common sense and all of that. And I tell him, if the thing you can do in that moment is to take those few deep breaths, the memories that will come back to you and you'll begin to say, oh, wait a minute. I see what you're doing here. Why should I give you your money? Why don't I just keep my own money? And then I'll decide whether that vaccine's good. But why should I give you tax dollars so that you can buy this thing for me? Why don't you just let me keep the tax dollars and I'll decide whether that thing's good for me or not. If I want it, I'll go down to CVS and get it. If I don't, I won't. Um, but this ability to get people to think shallowly. I like to tell them it's not irrational. You're thinking shallowly. Don't let them constrain your independent thought by getting you to give it up in fear. And that's what they'll do if they can get you scared. And when you look at a lot of the people that waited a few months to get the mRNA shot, um, they're not sad they waited because the longer they waited and the more they thought about it more rationally, then the more they realized that there's a lot going on that, you know, the federal government might not have told us or they lied to us. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I, I don't meet anybody who hasn't had the shot who regrets not getting it. I take care of lots right. of patients who have had the shot who very much regret getting it, yep. um, including people who were not injured but saw other people get injured. Um, you know, they got lucky and got one of the cold lots. And they're, um, well, uh, I, I regret even having taken the chance on that cold lot. Um, so, Well, and the reality of it is, Dr. Stock, is that I – I mean, the, the side effects aren't over. I mean, we, we, we're seeing we're seeing turbo cancers come up. You know, how many younger men have been um, damaged with myocarditis, and it's not going to come out for a few years, or maybe even until they're in their fifties when they start. You know, when your heart's not as strong as it was when when you were twenty. Who knows? You know, in fact, this is the the sad thing um, that I tell people because there is obligate destruction of healthy tissue with every shot you take of this. And it has to be that way by design. For those people on the podcast who don't understand why I can say that, um, there's a gland in your chest called the thymus gland, which tells your immune system cells, these are all the proteins and things that are genetically coded for you, and you can attack everything else. So when these mRNA shots get a healthy cell to start making a protein that is not encoded in their genetics, those cells must be destroyed by the immune system. The only way to avoid that is to make them so they won't attack that protein, and now they won't fight the germ. And this is such basic immunology. 
that there is no way you could have designed modified RNA technology to not make the immune system destroy healthy tissue. Um, the reason the gene therapy industry is dead is because they couldn't get around that reality. It's fundamental to how an immune system protects us from infection. So we already know there was a study done that showed that just with biochemical screening, just looking at things like um, uh, troponin levels and that, that a third of people who are getting these shots are having elevations of troponin levels and other signs of cellular death. Um, and that, that this is just the amount that we can measure um, years from now, how much heart muscle you've lost, lost that you can't regenerate and more frightening yet to me. We know that these lipid nanoparticles cross the blood brain barrier. They affect brain cells. You know, you can destroy a brain cell and we now know you can regenerate brain cells, but can you get it to come back with all the connections it used to have? That's much harder to do. In fact, may not be possible to do, which means memory the ability to control your internal organs that your brain does on a moment to moment basis. All of this has been compromised and may stay compromised for the remainder of your life. Um, and we as a people are going to have to come together and try and protect these poor souls who got suckered by this. Um, the, the turbo cancers are only the, the, the latest installment of this. Many of these people whose immune systems have been deranged by these shots. And it's important for people to know that immune systems are very complicated. They learn and have memory of how they're supposed to respond to a foreign protein. Once you've perverted that memory, what they call the original antigenic sin, you may make somebody so that their immune system can never properly fight coronavirus again. We don't know the answers to this, but we're terrified of it. The number of people that we're seeing having repeated infections um, we have some ideas of how to reverse it, but the research to prove how to reverse this is going to be very expensive if we're going to do it with certainty. It's all being done with anecdotes right now. Um, this is the horror of what's been unleashed on the human population, is that we may not be able to fix this for the poor people who have taken this, at least not fix it completely. Well, we get some degree of it. At our Medical Freedom Northwest conference, one of the doctors there, I think it was Dr. Renata Moon, um, she played a video of some government agent. I don't remember what agency he he was a part of, CDC or or what. But he literally basically said that we need to roll these out so we can see what the effects before we can see what the effects are because we want you know which basically say we don't know what the effects are going to be so we need to roll them out until to, to see what the effects are going to be it's like and that's exactly what they did yeah i mean and by the way i, I got to give a shout out to runny moon god bless washington state for giving us her she has been very brave in the face of assault from so many places but that that thing she showed is exactly right this is an experiment and and an experiment that was first of all badly designed um, almost certainly with intention, badly designed, but very ill-conceived. Um, this, you know, the reason no mRNA product had ever come to market through the regular channels of approval is they didn't work. Um, in fact, I saw a quote of Anthony Fauci walking through some um, neighborhood trying to convince some guy to take one of these shots, and the guy just blew him off. And he was claiming, "Well, they've been researched for ten years." It's like, you know, how come they never came out with a product? Yeah, the product was always harmful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would have been like saying we're going to use large doses of strychnine as a way to, you know, to prevent uh, cerebral palsy. It's like, well, yeah, because it'll kill you from everything else and then you won't get cerebral palsy. Right. It's an ill-conceived study. No one would right. ever do it. 
Um, it's like saying, hey, can you grow a breastbone strong enough that a U-57 Magnum shot won't go through it? Well, yeah, you can do the experiment, but I'm pretty sure I know the answer before you start it. So no rational man would participate in this. Um, and these shots have been set up with that same level of irrationality, or as I like to call coerced rationality. Uh, I live by the term, you can only get so stupid for free, and you have to pay a lot of money to get ignorance. Um, and that's what's happened here, unfortunately. So what, what's the answer, uh, Dr. Dan Stock? What about, what about your colleagues? Can, can, can they continue to practice in the traditional environment um, with ethics? So I, I, the one thing, I, whenever I do a lecture, I tell patients, I know you're sitting around waiting for your doctor to save you. And let me tell you what has to happen first is you have to save him. Um, I don't think people realize that the average medical student coming out of medical school right now is $350,000 in debt. If he goes to work for a health network for 10 years, he can get that forgiven. But if he works for that health network for nine years, 11 months and 29 days and they fire him, if he doesn't get hired by another hospital in two days, all 10 years of that debt come back. So and it's just, excuse me to interrupt, but that's by design. Yeah, it's I mean, right. It, Again, it, 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 literally, the system creates slaves so they can control the doctors. You can only get so stupid for free, right? Yeah. Um, so I tell people, look, what you need to do is to get involved with your legislature and change the laws. And you have to know how to get involved with your legislature. And this is... Um, my other area of experience, I've been actually lobbying the Indiana State Legislature since 2015 on behalf of the Convention of States Organization. Um, and through that, I have learned why legislators don't serve their constituents. Um, and so people need to go with a legislator and attack the fundamental. I, I'm a functional medicine doctor, so I get root cause stuff first. Um, you need to find the root cause of why your legislator has passed these laws that allowed this nonsense to go on. Um, and so I beg people, first of all, look at the rules of the chamber of your legislature. And what you're gonna find right now is the way your legislator works is that you guys all give your power to this legislator who marches into the chamber and promptly gives away all of your power to the leader of that chamber through the rules. And immediately as soon as that leader has all of that power, the crony capitalists and their lobbyists land on him. And it's typical, it's tempting to want to say, well, he must be an evil man. But I tell people, you don't understand what he suddenly has pressure-wise on him. And so the first solution you have to do before you ever have a chance of getting a law passed to make medical freedom come about, before you can rely on that doctor, you have to go to your legislature and say, I know how this thing works. The good bills all die in committee. They never get debated. They never get voted on so that I can't hold you accountable. And the first thing I want you to do is to change those rules of the House and Senate and your state. Um, we need that to go on like steroids over what happened to uh, Mr. McCarthy in, in, in the United States Federal House. Um, we need that to happen in every state legislature because now... When that power is taken away from the leader and distributed back to the individual legislators, we can hold them accountable for what they do and don't do. We can see when they side with the lobbyist. Second of all, it'll make the lobbyist so he has to buy a lot more people. Um, and eventually you can get the power distributed out widely enough that the grassroots can control it again. So I tell people, if you want medical freedom, the first thing you're going to have to do is go to your legislator and tell them, I want you to take my power back 
from the leader of that chamber. You're going to have to make yourself accountable to me again by doing that. It's going to be very scary. They are going to threaten to come out you with every single alternative person to run against you in the primary. But you as a group of people have to get together and say, I have your back if you will let me change this job description and I'll have your flank if you don't. Um, you know, human beings respond best when they're given carrots and sticks. Um, right now, we probably have to use more sticks on our legislators, but simultaneously, we have to tell them, look, we understand you're scared. And, and guys, when you work with the average later, legislator, he is terrified. He has these things he wants to do for his constituency, but he knows that these crony capitalists and their campaign cash own that leader and will use that to his destruction. And it's very easy when they're frightened to think superficially and give in. Um, it's easier for them to hide. The most important thing is for us to go to them and say, we understand your situation. Change the rules of that chamber. Take our power back from that leader and we will have your back. Um, but we need you at this moment to become that bigger man in this legislature. Then when we have accomplished that so that a good law actually can get debated and can get uh, voted on, then we can start to make the changes at the state level, which is where it's going to have to happen first. And I'll give you a great example of that that happened here in Indiana. We had a very thoughtful legislator, uh, Donna Shively was her name, who proposed a law in Indiana that would make it. So it was illegal to have a non-compete, non-contact clause in, in the uh, contract of a physician. I think, people, I think I heard that about yeah. that. That was just recently, wasn't it? Yes. As a matter yeah. of fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure leadership just disassembled her in, in the caucus room when her bill was through being amended. It had lost all of that. And I saw I mentioned this while I was testifying in front of the legislature and the poor woman just looked sat upon. Um, you could tell that, that she had wanted to do a good thing and that they had just completely thwarted it. Um, but it's important for people to know that the, the way this whole thing goes down uh, the government said, look, hospitals, we're going to pay you to employ these doctors. We'll punish you if you don't. And then all of these hospitals put clauses in the doctor's contract that says they can fire him at any time. And if we fire him, he has to move 50 miles away to practice. He can't contact his patients and tell them where he's going and why he's leaving the hospital network. And for those of you who don't understand how we doctors work, um, what our business capital, the investment we make, similar to what a pharmacist makes in his pharmacy, is the faith that the patient has in our advice and their ability to get it. And what they do is with these non-compete, non-contact clauses, they basically make the doctor a hostage of the health network. Once that's done, he, he's caught. And he gets out only by abandoning his family. Many of these doctors have kids in college that they're trying to take care of, not just their own personal loans. It's not just them that would go bankrupt. Most of these doctors by now have a family they're trying to raise. Well, what they tried to do was pass this law to make it so that non-compete, non-contact clauses would be illegal in the state of Indiana. Because as soon as you made that, the, the, the government's power to manipulate the hospital and control the doctor is markedly removed. Um, of course, that got pretty much destroyed in committee um, and uh, done by these same secretive methods. Um, there was no hearing. The debate to amend that did not occur in a public debate. Um, and you can see very quickly how the system works. Once we've got those non-compete, non non-contact clauses removed, then we can start doing other things that markedly by itself will weaken the government's hand. Um, 
and yeah. start giving it back to your doctor so that he can survive on his own. Um, other things that we can do after that is in each state pass a vaccine non-discrimination statute. Um, as a matter of fact, I would hope hope to see what Benjamin Rush of our founding fathers wanted to have. And for those of you who don't know it, uh, there was a physician at the Constitutional Convention by the name of Benjamin Rush who argued for an 11th Bill of Right. And the 11th Bill of Right, he said, look, tyrants will always go after the health of the population to frighten them in compliance. This was not new. The plague and many of these things were used by tyrants for years to do this. Yeah. And he wanted an, an a, not a uh, 11th Amendment that would set bodily integrity uh, that the federal government may not be involved in health care and that all human beings shall be uh, uh, ser- uh, secure in their own body to choose what is necessary for their own health care. Uh, he couldn't convince the Constitutional Convention to pass that. But we need that to come about in every state. And so if every state we passed what's called a vaccine non-discrimination statute, making it a protected class, then it becomes illegal for anyone to ask you your vaccine status, to keep records of your vaccine status, except for your private position. Um, And now no one can actually interrogate you on this any longer. And I think people, there's a lot of people who still have this idea that somehow or other vaccines protect the population. Um, And that's not true of any vaccine, even the vaccines that I can get behind. And, you know, the, the, one of the things tyrants do when, when you don't agree with them is they start calling you names. So you and I get called anti-vaxxers. Yeah. And I tell people, look, if I got bitten by a rabid squirrel tomorrow, I would take rabies vaccine in a heartbeat. It's a rational biochemical approach to solve that particular problem with that particular pathogen. But I got to tell you, for the vast majority of things that we have vaccines for, um, these things do not protect you any better. Uh, they don't protect anyone around you any better than if you just got infected yourself. Um, and this well, is- and let, let's, just, let's just talk rationally about that. Yeah. So vaccines have largely been out, what, the last 70 years, mostly, 1950s when the polio, the Sulk vaccine with polio came out. And of course, polio, polio was going to wipe out all these kids. They were not going to be able to walk. They were going to end up on an iron lung. And then all of a sudden- a magic vaccine comes around to save the population. That's interesting. Boy, that kind of sounds like fast forward 70 years to COVID. Same narrative. How long had the polio virus been around? Well, you know, probably as far back as we do any medical research. And and it didn't do that. So, And in fact, it's important for people to know that there are different kinds of pathogens, all right? If you look at rabies, you you get bitten by a rabid squirrel. Uh, The the vast majority of people getting bitten by a rabid squirrel are going to come down and die from rabies if you don't intervene. But that's very different than what we give vaccines for nowadays. Um, I love asking this question when I do a lecture to people. Do you know what percentage of people who became infected with COVID-19 never had any symptoms at all? And most people know the answer to that, but it's 80%. I'm not surprised. Now think about that. First of all, that means that the difference between disease and infection isn't the pathogen. They're all getting infected. 80% of them never know that they have never have it. Their immune system just defeats it. The difference is the quality of your immune system. And so you're making vaccines for something that doesn't need a vaccine to begin with. The majority of people who got polio did not end up paralyzed. Therefore, the proper solution was never a vaccine. 
It was to find out what the difference between the people's immune system who ended up with paralysis and the immune system of those who did not was and fix that difference. However, those differences are all non-patentable and not profitable. Yep. All right. So people need to understand that there are three ways to contribute to herd immunity. The, one of them is you can get infected and die. And I tell somebody, if you get infected with a pathogen and die, you just took yourself out of the gene pool. Your defective immune system is gone. And now the average competence of the immune system of the population just went higher because you took yours out. So I actually... Also, and also, remember, viruses and bacteria, they don't want to kill their hosts. Right. Because then they can't replicate. So it, they don't really want that to happen. Okay. They, go. they are taking advantage of your compromised immune system to begin with. All yeah. right. So I tell people, when you want to protect the population, you can protect it by just getting infected and dying. You can protect it by getting infected and surviving with a symptomatic case. In either case, you will have a competent immune system that fights off the pathogen and protects everybody around you. Now, if you want a less secure way to do that, you can do a vaccine. And most people stop and say, well, what do you mean? Vaccine's not as good at protecting the population? I said, that's correct. It doesn't make your immune system work as well as natural infection does. And I can prove that to you. If you're a one-year-old, who got measles, mumps, and rubella, you would never get measles, mumps, and rubella again in your life. But if we gave you a vaccine at age one, your immune system would lose its ability to fight that off. And at age five, we'd have to give you another dose. So even if it's just in duration of protection, because vaccines never actually mimic infection the way it naturally occurs, the immune system never learns to fight the infection exactly as it would if you got natively infected, vaccines never give you as good a protection. They are never as good at protecting herd immunity as simply getting infected and surviving it or dying. Either one does. So when I look at people becoming infected asymptomatically, becoming infected symptomatically or dying equally well contribute to the health and well-being of those around you. And they all contribute better than vaccination does. So when someone comes out and says, you need to be vaccinated for my sake, they do not understand the basic biology of the immune system pathogen interaction. Um, and that is going to be true of every pathogen in the world. Now, there are certain pathogens that our immune system, even at its best, cannot overcome. But those are pathogens we rarely run into, such as rabies. All right. The common pathogens that we're always going to hit the rest of our life, we call these endemic pathogens. They exist in our normal environment. We're they supposed to get along with them. No vaccine will ever work against these. And they will never protect anyone in the population if someone else gets vaccinated. A vaccine is a way you may choose to use to modify your immune system function. I'm going to bet if we actually did a good study, we would find that there are superior ways. As a matter of fact, there is an, you know what the most active um, uh, treatment for COVID-19 that was ever researched was? 25-hydroxyvitamin D. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not surprised. Placebo-controlled randomized blinded trial done in people already hospitalized for COVID-19, already taking azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine at appropriate doses. 25-hydroxyvitamin D reduced the death rate by 100%. Small trial wasn't statistically significant, 
but it reduced the progression to the ICU by 90%. And that was highly statistically significant. And that is the top of the line type of research you can do, ladies and gentlemen. I read the study myself. It's a much better done study than any of the studies on these shots were done. And so I point out to people that the hysteria about you need a vaccine to protect me, it's scientifically un, uh, unbased. Um, it's not accurate. So you should not be looking down at anyone who makes a different vaccine decision than you make any more than they should look down on you. Vaccine is a personal choice that affects no one but you and your health. It doesn't have an effect on the rest of us. Um, as a matter of fact, the New York Supreme Court in, uh, re in turning down uh, Governor Hochul's um, vaccine mandate, um, it wasn't just that they said she didn't have the authority. What was so wonderful is for the first time, a court looked at the supposed experts and said, your reasoning is invalid. These things don't stop spread. There is no reason for you to have a mandate. And I think most people were so happy celebrating that they didn't realize that for the first time, a court of law had looked at these supposed experts and said, you're not expert. You're, you're, whether you're lying or you're just idiots, we don't know but you're not expert and acknowledged that at least in the case of this shot, there was no rationale for one human being to take this on the idea of protecting another human being. Um, now, if we can get people to understand that that is true of all vaccines, even good vaccines. And I tell somebody, if, if you take a rabies shot, Sean, you're not protecting me from rabies. Right. Exactly. No. I mean, if that, if that, Squirrel bites me. I'm still going to get rabies. Yeah. Uh, I told somebody even for other vaccines. But, but you know what's interesting, Dr. Stock, and believe me, when I interview, one of the great things about this podcast, I learn so much when I interview people like yourself. And, you know, believe me, my, my thoughts about vaccines and stuff have really come full circle. And, you know, I'm not sure how you were trained on vaccines, but how I was trained on vaccines is like, no, I mean, everybody's got to get the vaccine in order to, it, what, no matter what vaccine it is, you know, a majority of people have to get it to prevent, you know, a, a, be, to prevent a pandemic. And, and, and when, you, but, but that makes no rational sense. It's, it's like what you just said. Uh, the vaccine only protects yourself. Yeah. I'm actually a functional medicine physician. Um, so I've done some advanced study in inflammation regulation and immune system control. And I have to tell you, what your doctor learns about the immune system in medical school is extremely superficial. Um, it is amazing. Once you learn more about it, you, you, you want your money back on that degree. Uh, <laughs> and so I tell people, when your doctor tells you some stuff that's nonsense, understand how honestly he's coming by it. He, he was taught very superficially about this. What he learned about vaccines is vaccines good. That's what he got taught. There was nothing more in-depth about immune system function. He didn't learn about portal of entry. He wasn't taught about the regulation of humoral and cellular immunity. He wasn't taught about antibody class shifting. None of that was taught. So when he tells you these things that don't make sense with what you're seeing going on in the population, he's as naive about this as you were. Um, the only reason he's not learning it as fast as you is he has a financial gun to his head, and you don't, unless yeah. your employer puts you on a mandate. But once you come to understand this, you can see why, hey, Dan Stock is an anti-vaxxer. You know, the oral typhoid vaccine, I would probably take if I were going to travel to a place with endemic typhoid. I would take a rabies vaccine. But the decision to take a vaccine has to be determined upon the nature of the pathogen, 
and the nature of the immune system. And in many of these diseases, the pathogen is a very small variable. The immune system is the very large variable. And that is not being taught at all. I can well, tell you in medical school. And that's what sustained us for thousands of years. Right. Why did we think the earth was flat for centuries? All right. right. Um, you know, I, I tell people it's a, it's a, a breakthrough in understanding, which is very powerful, though. Um, in medical school, they would tell you this one line that, remember, antibiotics don't fight infections. The immune system does. Antibiotics just help it out. And then after saying that, they completely ignored it the remainder of our training. Um, when somebody would come in with severe sepsis, we would never give him vitamin D. We would never give him vitamin C. Some of my osteopathic colleagues are smart enough. They learned that. Um, but uh, it wasn't taught in medical school. We were taught to ignore the immune system was like this big black box. And smart people in Washington knew what was going on in the black box, and they would tell us about it. Uh, but we were very underinformed. And so I, I beg people to understand Um I don't want them to hate their doctor who's in the third-party payment system. I tell them, have him on your hockey team. Go out to dinner with him. I don't know that I trust his medical advice. Understand his situation. Um, but understand that what he was taught in medical school about immunology is very naive. It's very superficial. Um, most doctors don't even know that there are different classes of IgG antibody. Um Doctors are taught that antibodies fight infection. When I was in medical school, we were taught that wasn't true. Uh, we were taught that antibodies prevent spread of infection, that the only thing you get when you measure an antibody in the blood is it tells you that the person has previously been exposed. That's what I was taught in medical school. That's not taught anymore. Um, the CDC is telling people that antibodies mean immunity. And for those of you who don't know this, there was actually a vaccine in the 1960s for respiratory syncytial virus. Remember this story as you're deciding whether to take that vaccine, um, where they actually did the study on this thing right. And uh, it turned out that if you took the vaccine uh, in the second year, you were more likely to die from RSV if you were a kid who took the shot than if you didn't, if you took placebo. You know what the hallmark of the people who were dying from RSV was? They had enormous levels of antibodies. So they had these huge antibody levels and they were dying from the disease because their immune system had been taught to respond to the virus wrong. Right. And as a matter of fact, I will note for anybody, I've, I've looked at the uh, studies done on these RSV vaccines. They don't carry them out beyond one year because in the previous trials they did with these vaccines, it was in year two that they started to notice the damn things were killing you. <laughs> and so, well, and, and, and here's, a, here's one thing that we... There's a lot more unknowns of the immune system than knowns. Like, for instance, we can measure IgA, IgG, whatever, to see if you've had previous infection or you might have previous immunity. But we only know to measure what we know. Just because you might not have IgG or IgA or what have you antibodies doesn't mean you can't fight that infection or that you haven't been exposed before. Right. Because we only know what to know to measure. We don't know some things to measure. And I think you saw that early on with COVID when there was some serum antibody testing and people were saying, see, these people haven't been exposed yet. Well, right. that's just not always the case. Maybe not. I, they're not mounting IgA or an IgG response, but that doesn't mean they weren't exposed and they're mounting some other kind of response. You know, in fact, that's an important thing to know that we actually can measure the thing that matters. All right. And that's what's called a cellular immune response. The test is very expensive. 
So it's, it's hard to do research with it because of that. And the government won't fund that expensive research because that gives them answers they don't want. Um, <laughs> even though if you said to me, though, Dan, is the cellular immunity test foolproof? The answer is, oh, no, there's variables going on in there that we don't know how to measure. Um, one of the reasons that if anybody comes out and says, will you damn a vaccine? You know, if somebody said, Dan, right now, would you get pneumococcal vaccine? I'd say, no, I wouldn't. Are you sure you shouldn't get pneumococcal vaccine? I'd say, no, the studies have never been done right. Um, but my best guess, and I got to say it's my best guess, because there are variables in the immune system that we know are there that we know we can't measure, um, at least not in a clinically significant way. And so I tell people we're making a lot of our best guesses. This is actually in that area of best guesses where it's most important to have no financial conflict of interest because it makes you guess badly. Um, but if I were pushed on this, I would say, look, almost none of the vaccines, well, I'll just go out and say it. None of the vaccines in the United States right now have been well-researched. They have all had improper placebo controls. We don't know whether or not these things have been effective or not. Uh, Dr. Paul Offit can come out and say that, that saline can't be a placebo because three liters will kill you, even though none of us are planning on giving a three liter vaccine <laughs> placebo. Um, but none of these have been researched properly. We do not know if they make the benefit outweighs the risk. What we do know is that all of the adjuvants being used in these vaccines are toxic. Um, in fact, they have to be toxic. Uh, for those who know how immune systems work, if you just take a protein that's not causing any problem, foreign protein, put it underneath your skin, your immune system will not react to it. Um, it only reacts to it when an injured cell sends it the right signals and says, hey, I'm hurt. Come in here and see if these proteins are associated with my injury. So they learned long ago that if you just take tetanus toxoid and you stick it under the skin, or not tetanus toxoid, because that does have an, a, an injury response to it. It does, right? Yeah. Let's say you took something like um, the uh, nucleocapsid protein of a uh, coronavirus and you just put it under the skin. You'd get no immune system reaction because the body would say, look, I'm not injured. I'm not going to activate the immune system to do anything about it. So to get them to respond to these proteins, they put these things they call adjuvants, which are almost all of them aluminum toxins. So we know we're causing tissue injury with every one of these as a way to get the immune system to respond. So someone has to ask the logical question, is it possible that the damage done from the toxin is greater than the risk of the infection without the shot? And then to ask even the better question, what if what we did was augment your immune system rather than give you this vaccine? And in fact, in none of these trials of vaccines, do we have the necessary third option, which is one group taking a true placebo, one group taking the vaccine, and one group taking vitamin D and zinc. And that study, I'm betting, will never be financed by any pharmaceutical company. I'll bet it'll never be financed by your federal government, at least until we end crony capitalism. Because I would predict, and I can't say this as a scientist with 95% certainty, but when my patients ask me, my prediction is that if you looked at that, the people who would take the placebo probably would do better than people who took the shot, and the people who took the zinc and the vitamin D would probably do better than both groups, and not just against the pathogen. But there's no money in that. There is no money in that. At 25-hydroxyvitamin D, you can buy over-the-counter from Amazon, and, and the acute the amount to treat a case of acute COVID-19 is $30. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's going to that's gonna last you for six months, too. 
Yeah. And I, I tell somebody, think about that when somebody says, hey, go get Paxlovid or Molnupivir. I tell them, think of what you're going to spend on that versus $30. Hydroxyvitamin D. Well, and of course, with a lot of the ones from Disavir, and I'm not sure about Paxlovid, but the COVID vaccine is, you know, our tax dollars are paying for it. Well, in fact, isn't that the greatest example of government abuse? That those of us who looked at these things and said, look, I will not take these. I think they're worse for me than placebo, and they are not my best option. I have other things. We're forced to put our tax dollars to buy this stuff. Um, And for those of you, if we have time to discuss the the Bayh-Dole Act of 1984, are you familiar with that, Sean? I am not. Go ahead. So in 1984, your federal Congress passed a law that changed patent law to say that federal government could pay for research that led to something patentable. And whoever was paid to do the research could own that patent for their personal profit. So for those of you who don't understand the significance of this, we know that in one year alone, Moderna paid $400 million of royalties to people at the NIH to use the patents that they had paid for research on to make these shots. That doesn't even get into the money that was spent by Gilead for remdesivir or Pfizer for Paxlovid or Merck for uh, Molnupavir. All of these are probably having, we know for sure on the shots, but for the rest of these, there are almost certainly royalties being paid to the people at the NIH for the use of the stuff that they paid for patents on to do. And in fact, the main way drugs are designed nowadays is not to do the research themselves. The NIH funds the research and the pharmaceutical company licenses the patent from someone in the federal government. And federal government employees getting paid for patents that we already paid their salary right. is a total conflict of interest. It, 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 guys, it's not even rational. Uh, it's, it's not. It, it's. I, I don't know. I don't know who really, besides the people profiting off that, would really agree to that. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like horrible. most horrible laws, they exist because of the naivete of the population. Yeah, In fact, exactly. I can't even tell you. Um, I, when I had to read about this by Dole hack, because honestly, this is one of those, oh my God, this, this is so stupid, it can't be for free. The argument being used for this was, well, if the government pays for something and owns the patent, they'll be very inefficient at developing it. It needs to be in the private sector. And I can tell you, it took me 30 seconds to say, okay, then the government owns the patent and is required to license it to any American citizen for $1. Now we've yeah. developed it. The human, the, the American population owns the patent, and anybody who wants to develop it, can go do so for one dollar. I solved. You need to be a government expert. It's like you know, look, I'm a stupid family doctor. I solved that problem in five seconds. Right? <laughs> you can't get that stupid for free. The Congress passed that law without saying, "Hey, do you think this will ever lead to a whole bunch of people just using government power to promote the things?" That, yeah, dude. You <laughs> right, right. You weren't taking money from lobbyists. You didn't realize this is stupid from the get go. Um, and then we get back to, guys, we have to stop crony capitalism. Absolutely. And the first step of that is making sure your legislators know that you know how the game works. And then we can get some traction and get this reversed and get some medical freedom back. Absolutely. So, Dr. Dr. Stock, as we wind up this podcast, uh, tell us what you have a passion for first. Um, well, I'll be honest with you, it's not COVID-19 because it's so damn easy to treat that uh, frankly, I'm losing interest in it. Um, I uh, everything in functional medicine. 
Um, I, I, the basic biochemistry, which is so badly taught in medical school, is, uh, is fascinating to me. My, my wife tells people that I bore people for a living um, because the biochemistry of this is so intricate. Um, and finding how to get people well without bankrupting them um, is such an art form because there are so many variables. They are so fun to juggle them all. But to juggle them all with the idea of I'm going to take the guy on my table and make him get well, there's a reason I don't participate in government more as an elected official is just because I thoroughly enjoy being a doctor. Um, it's just wonderful to do that. It's my passion. Awesome. Now, once you get me outside of that, legislative reform is my next passion, because if we don't solve that, it's not fun to do, but I'm going to end up in a Nazi country if I don't. Right. <laughs> Working right. on that one next. <laughs> So what's the best way to, I'm streaming your website here. What's the best way to, for somebody to get a hold of you if they have any questions? Um, well, if you want to get a hold of me for medical reasons, enjoy my practice, purehealthmed.com. And uh, you can send an email to drstock at purehealthmed.com. Um, if you're interested in forming a group to reform your legislature, I work for a group here in Indiana. I'm the director of the Citizens Coalition for Legislature Accountability. Our website is fixmylegislature.com, and our email address is citizenscoalition at proton.me. And we would love to help other states begin their own process of fixing their legislature. Uh, hoping to get this started in Texas. I'm going later this month to do a lecture down in Texas, hoping to encourage a group of doctors there to start their own citizens coalition to fix their legislature. And you in Washington can sure use it. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we sure could, yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, Dr. Stock, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Our goal is to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health, and you have helped us realize that goal, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on. Sean, thank you so much for having me on. I, I love having a good debate. If you can get anybody in Washington State to come to a debate, we'd love to have that too. Yeah. <laughs> And, and hang on, as we wind this podcast up, hang on, because I want to talk to you after after the show, okay? Sure. And listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Thursday to our midweek podcast, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you.